well, man, these are uh, exciting times, huh, Code? <laughs> In what way? Uh, we're about to launch the Patreon and put our new shit out there into the open for the first time. All right. Yeah, yeah. Definitely yeah. exciting. I feel like we've been working on it for, I mean, I've been working on it before you moved back here in, what month was that? That was in May. Back in May. So I'd been working on it for at least two months before that, as far as the the Patreon video goes, uh, filming that, doing interviews, gathering content from contributors, whether that's video or photos. I wouldn't use the words we're behind schedule, but I know that we thought we were going to launch all this somewhat in the beginning of the summer. And I think we quickly realized it was going to take a little bit more time. It's been a learning process. So whether it's how much better these podcasts sound than the ones that we did with the USB mic, and then realizing that we wanted to sound as professional as possible. When me and Cody decided that we wanted to really kind of kick up Crude Meg and take it to another level... We knew we were going to have to have money to do it. You know, it had, it, it, had, it had paid for itself, but it needs to bring in more money in order to do like documentary type series, in order to do podcasting, and we could have done advertising. And we realized that that is not the way to go. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, there, there can be some elements of partnerships. Uh, we've talked about that. But as far as the traditional advertising model, we won't do because what it does is it affects the content. Well, we would, we, yeah, and we would eventually have to produce content that no one wants to fucking see. Yeah, You exactly. know, because it's the stuff that gets the most eyes. You know, it's the stuff that's the most uh, friendly to everybody. Mm -hmm. And that just kind of cuts away at what the kind of journalism we want to do. Exactly. You know, and so I guess another thing I'd just like to say to everybody is like, I hope you guys can learn to trust us. Yeah. You know, because I know that there's not a lot of trust in news and journalism right now. You know, one thing that I've I've noticed about Crude um, that, that I think is really encouraging is obviously the people who are fans of Crude within Alaska um, are excited to see this, this kind of authentic representation of Alaskan lifestyles. But another thing... Another um, group of people that I think is really interesting are the people that have moved out of Alaska and they hit me up or they hit crude up and they say, thank you. You know, I live in Iowa now. I live in Wisconsin. I'm, I, you know, I'm not in Alaska anymore. And so when I see a post that crude does, or I see a story that crude does, it's kind of like this lifeline back to Alaska. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, that's even how I found crude. You know, I was living out of state uh -huh. and it was really cool. Just, yes, yeah, he's something representing, you know, who we are from an authentic kind of core perspective. You know, we should also talk about our Patreon because we're going to talk about this every episode, you know, and as much as much as we can, because the Patreon format and platform is what's going to allow us to keep doing this and to hopefully grow it and create meaningful content for the Anchorage and the greater Alaskan media market. And hopefully to anyone outside of the state you know, who wants to look in and kind of see what's going on in Alaska. We don't want to form your opinion for you. We want you to kind of take some of the information we can provide through these firsthand perspectives, whether it's through our podcasting or through our video documentaries, and hopefully form your own opinion or at least just talk about it. And that's the purpose of these long form conversations. We're not looking for sound bites. We're not looking to 
you know, produce any gotcha journalism. We want to have a full-blown conversation with people that, that we know have an interesting perspective on stuff and that are doing cool things. We're not, you know, scraping through this stuff or picking through this stuff and you know, piecemealing it for you. You know, hey, we already looked through this. This is what you want. You know what's cool about the Patreon platform is it's going to allow us to really interact with everybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Get feedback. Show them some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Discuss what it what it takes to, to grow a media company. Join in this conversation because what we're seeking to do with some of this stuff is to just understand ourselves better. You know, and we do that by talking to each other. Exactly. And so we want to cover everything. And hopefully by the time... This is finished. We've figured a little more something about what it what makes Alaskans tick. Yeah, I think so. I think that 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 is the ultimate goal is to help define Alaska's cultures in a way that gives it back to the general public and being like, oh, yeah, that is a little bit of what I am and and gives their I don't know, just their lifestyle or their their life a little bit more meaning. We're going to keep learning and keep getting better until we're basically known as the best podcasters, not only in Alaska, but in the planet. On the entire planet. <laughs> and since since we're NASA's like trying to go to Mars, I think that we can I think no, we can I'm accomplish gonna, that now. I'm gonna stop you there. You're gonna really? You don't think we can be better than people on Mars? There's nobody on Mars. Well, that's what they're telling us. <laughs> Welcome to Cody and Dustin's crude conspiracies. <laughs> All right, let's let's cut to the chase here. David Holthouse. David Holthouse. I didn't know exactly what to expect when he walked in. Cause he's like an alt-weekly journalist. Now he works on documentaries. He's written on, you know, you know, the neo-Nazi movement and other kind of seedier parts of culture. And you kind of wonder, okay, what's a guy look like? And when he walked in, I was like, Holthouse looks exactly like I would expect him to look. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I... I I've always wanted him to put on corpse paint just because I think it would look badass. Do you know what corpse paint is, Dustin? I yeah, see this. No, I do. Face. I'm just like I'm just like you're exactly right, man. Corpse paint would work. Yeah, he just looks very like Norwegian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you gotta see. You look so confused. Like <laughs> I know, it's just, it, I'm just I just can't stop picturing him with the with the corpse paint, like what if when he did that, each guest... Like King Diamond. King... I don't know King Diamond. Oh, good Lord. I know. He's a... Uh, Am I fired? Yeah, you're fucking done, dude. <laughs> I've done a lot of interviews in, in my life as a journalist. And what I have come to appreciate are the interviews that come easy or the conversations that come easy and they just kind of flow. You're just sitting there talking back and forth. There's... There's a, a comfortable indication of when we can interject and we can, we can uh, ask a question or we can give a little bit of an anecdote about our own life and we all just feed off each other. And I think that that really happened during this conversation. Yeah, I would agree with you completely. What's so interesting about someone like David is he's been there, right? Like he's, he's telling us about this stuff and we're actively you know, conversating with him about, you know, something that he was actively a part of, which is really interesting, right? Because it's like this piece of living history. He's just covered some really, really interesting topics. We got to talk to him about some documentaries he had made about, you know, northern indigenous hip-hop artists and 
crooked Brooklyn cops in the 1980s. A Cuban spy who later became a cocaine dealer and is now living like in South Africa and he actually like met up with him, right? And then uh, the real interesting one, and I'm pretty sure this was the one you were most enthralled with, was the... Uh, <laughs> Was, was the John and Lorena Bobbitt story, which is coming out in January on, is it show? No, Amazon, right? Amazon, yeah. Docu-series. I, I knew you were going to go there. Dude, you were just so intrigued by the knife. <laughs> All right, well, let's just jump into this interview with David Holdhouse. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, is that good? Yeah. All right. Mike is hot. Mike's hot? Mike's hot. Is it recording? It's recording. That's what that means, dude. Crude conversations. Listen more, then you talk. Go to work! Technical difficulties. Thanks for being such a good sport, David. Round two. Yeah, round yeah. two. All right, yeah, so you, you just got back from <laughs> Finland. Yes, just got back from a uh, two-week trip to northern Norway and uh, northern Finland. Uh, I'm aimed way up north, well above the Arctic Circle. Um working on a uh, documentary film project. Uh, it's an Anchorage Museum project that I'm collaborating on with a fellow curator there, Aaron Leggett, and uh, my wife, Priscilla Hensley. And it's, it's about um, indigenous uh, hip-hop artists all across the circumpolar north. So we started with Alaska, and then the concept expanded to Russia and Greenland and Norway, uh, Finland, northern Canada. The original uh, genesis of the, of the documentary, which is called We Up, was um, I was uh, at the AFN convention in Fairbanks, I think seven years ago. And in the lobby of my hotel were a bunch of teenagers from the YK Delta that were um, having a rap battle and they were freestyling, but they were freestyling in English and in Yupik and switching back and forth between the languages. And I was like, that's super interesting. That's a that's an interpretation of hip hop that I haven't seen. And, and um, from there, it was just like researching uh, like native hip hop basically in, in Alaska and finding the pretty impressive pool of talent and then the concept from there expanded to indigenous hip-hop artists in northern canada like really remote places in northern canada nuke greenland has an amazing hip-hop scene and then also finding that the sami rappers and sami djs and break dancers up in northern norway and northern finland also have their own sort of incredible scene and and the uh the sami rapper he's the he came here to anchorage to the anchorage museum right yeah there's been there's been a couple um associated with this project that have that have come and, and visited uh one ilu violet was just here in april and then uh slin craze and ilu violet is a sami uh from uh finland and uh slin craze is sami from norway but once you get up kind of in the far northern reaches of both those countries up in this sort of Sami homeland, the international borders become very uh, almost bordering on irrelevant, if you'll pardon the pun there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, there's no, you just cross back and forth. Yeah, yeah. You know, your phone tells you that you've that you've changed countries. That's about it. And I, I remember um, talking to you about uh, the Sami rapper, and you were like kind of explaining to me, like, it, it sounds like this language was was created to rhyme. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to um, any of their work, uh, Ilu Vile or Slin Craze, there's another rapper called Amok that's, uh, that's great, who's also Sami. I mean, it's, the Sami language has all these um, ways to uh, have these really sort of fast, almost trilling rhymes. And it's also, there are internal rhymes, uh, which you find internal rhymes, obviously, in hip-hop and English, but in, in Sami, it's just... Um, the words just connect uh, perfectly for hip hop. It's the best way I could explain it. 
I mean, you listen to it, and it's like if there was a language that was that was better suited for hip hop, I've never heard it. And so, so you're making a documentary? Yeah. So this is a documentary film um, uh, that the Anchorage Museum is producing, uh, and it'll be it'll be finished, uh, you know, probably in early October. Like we're deep into post production on it. It's uh, we're in the home stretch. Cool. So, and so, did you travel to all these places? We went to uh, uh, Greenland and um, a few different spots in Alaska. And then we went to uh, Norway and Finland uh, last summer and this summer to attend a, an annual festival there called Ridu Ridu, yeah, cool. where, they were, where they had a lot of hip hop. And actually, we went there. We didn't intend to go back this year, but um, based a, a bit, drawing some inspiration from our filming trip there last year, the festival directors decided to have the whole theme this year be Arctic indigenous hip hop. So they brought some Sami rappers from Russia and some artists from Northern Canada that we otherwise would not have been able to film with. So, uh, so it kind of worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And so how long has, has hip hop been like a thing in, in these different areas? Cause it's, it's relatively new, you know, since like what the late eighties hip hop came around. Yeah. That's a great, that's a good question. I mean, we ask these artists, like what artists inspired them. And, and the first, all of them either say Eminem or Tupac. In, in or vice versa, Tupac and Eminem, you know, those, mm. so that's where they started to draw it from. But the the scene in in Greenland actually goes back to a group called Nuke Posse that came out, I want to say, early to mid '90s. So it goes back a ways there. Um, the uh, the Sami rappers more they started to kind of come online in the early 2000s. Yeah, and you guys are saying Sami, Sami, yeah, Sami. They're, they're, they're like that? the indigenous. They're like the indigenous people of Scandinavia. Oh, I mean, yeah, okay. It's, it's, and how many people speak that language? I, I don't want to say because I because I might get it wrong. I know that that Amok, this I know that Amok he raps in a in a dialect of Sami that's only spoken by about four hundred people. I mean, the reason I asked that is because when I went and saw Slin Craze, one of the questions that was presented to the panel to him, or his his answer was that it's very niche the language that he's speaking. So. He, he has to kind of consult the elders. You know, is this right? Am I saying right. this correctly? That type of thing. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting. I mean, all these rappers, they're, they're, um, they rap and I mean, they all speak English. Everybody there speaks English. But a lot of these rappers are tri or even quadlingual, meaning like if they're, if they're Sami from Norway, they'll speak, you know, Sami, Norwegian and English and sometimes also Finnish. You know, and so they can mix all those languages into their raps. But they're all very conscious about using uh, hip hop to um, revitalize the their their native tongue, which is also you know which we're also finding with with some of the rappers in Alaska. And um, you know, it's a theme sort of throughout these regions. Do you listen to hip hop music at all? Yeah, yeah. And so, what do you think is is the difference between say? a rapper like Tupac, like the traditional rapper and the stuff that they're rapping about, which is kind of like what they see on the street versus a rapper like the ones in Norway and Russia that you've been talking to? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And it, it, there's, there's, there's some rappers that are more sort of activists first that we've, that we've talked with and the, and the rapping is sort of secondary. Like they might be, um, you know, either political activists or uh, they might be championing, you know their language, and they see the hip hop as a tool of that. There's also like rappers that we talk with that are just like rappers first. What I mean by that is they're rapping about their daily lives, you know. And that there's there's actually striking similarities between 
you know, guys that are rapping about their daily lives in a tiny reindeer herding village in northern Norway and somebody that's rapping about it, you know, from like Brooklyn or something. I mean, once you get past the setting, the themes of like of like uh, trouble at home, you know, substance abuse, um, you know, clashes that they might be having with somebody at school. Um, these are universal themes, you know. So, in your opinion, when it comes to just hip-hop in general, what is its role as, like, an influence to society? Storytelling. Storytelling. That's why I love it. And that's, that's why I think it lends itself, so, why it's so easily um, adapted to really far-flung places across the globe. It's, it's, at its essence, it's storytelling. Like, everybody can rhyme and everybody can tell a story. So, I mean, everybody has an interest in it, at least. And, um, you know, interestingly, like indigenous cultures, like they all have a powerful oral history tradition. Like that's one commonality between all these, whether it's like, you know, Inuit or Sami, uh, they both have, you know, storytelling traditions that date back way beyond recorded history. So it's very easy for them to graft that onto the willing host of hip hop. Should we talk about some of your other, your other stuff? I mean, what, what other, um documentaries are you interested in or not interested in but what, what have you been excited to to work on well the uh the first documentary the first feature length documentary that i worked on uh came out about four years ago it's called the seven five and it's about uh a crew of corrupt cops in brooklyn in the 1980s and uh, these guys are like all from long island and they they joined the police force about the same time and they were uh stationed to the seven five precinct 75th precinct in uh, East New York, Brooklyn. And for those not familiar with East New York, Brooklyn, like East New York, Brooklyn is still kind of hard. Okay. And given all the gentrification that's gone on in Brooklyn in the last 15 years, like that lets you know what East New York, Brooklyn was like in the 1980s, which is that it was the deadliest police precinct in the country by far, worse than the South Bronx. Uh, And especially once crack really took hold, it was just, it was, I mean, this is an overused um, descriptor for hardcore, you know, inner city or urban neighborhoods, a war zone. It was a fucking war zone. Okay. There was like competing crack gangs, like banging it out all day long. There was a cop that was killed, like literally steps outside the police station. I mean, it was, it was tough. And these guys, you know, were sort of parachuted into this scenario as rookie cops and they very quickly got corrupted and over the course of about four years went from being cops to being dirty cops that would like steal money from corpses at murder scenes to eventually going to work for the drug gangs and like providing police escorts for cross you know cross borough drug shipments within new york um they made a lot of money and of course they eventually got busted but it's kind of a period piece about um, you know, dirty cops in Brooklyn in the, in, in the mid eighties. You know, um, one thing that I always think about when I, when I see those is, uh, getting wrapped up in a culture. So if you are, you know, a rookie, you're green, you're coming into it. How, how difficult, I don't know if you can answer this, you know, because I, I don't know if you know, but how difficult is it to not get wrapped up in that culture and not be influenced by, by it so much that you are stealing stuff from corpses? Well, I think it's, you know, one of the guys in the movie, Kenny Urell, was who um, wound up being the guy that flipped on the rest of his on the rest of his crew. But in any case, you know, he traces it back to that time where he just like 
I think he took a 50. He took a 50 from a, from a scene. He can think of, like, that's where he crossed the line. 50 caliber. No, I'm sorry, $50 bill. Oh, took 50, $50 bucks. bill, okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's where he crossed the line. And once, I, once he crossed that line, there was, there was no going back. But, of course, like within, you know, the New York Police Department at that time, and I'm sure to a certain extent today, like you just didn't, like, rat out fellow cops you just didn't do that so there were dirty cops and in the seven five and a lot of other precincts uh, at that time there were a lot of dirty cops and there were cops that were not you know there were cops on the take meaning that they were getting paid off by drug gangs there were cops that would just sort of loot crime scenes and then there were cops that like stayed away from that and were clean but they would never like drop a dime on their fellow officers Another project I'm working on right now is on the on the drug or the drug war and kind of the rise of the cartels in Mexico in the 1980s, and the central character of it is a D agent who was basically in charge of the DA in the 80s. But before that, he worked in he worked in L.A. and he worked undercover, and he was like he said that he knew you know he if he ever even took he's like you you know we we'd hit these stash houses and there'd be like seventy thousand dollars under a mattress who's gonna miss five who's gonna miss one bundle. You know, and it's all rolled up in drug money style. So it's all rolled up in tight little rolls. It's easy. Just poop, take one. But he's like, he's like, I knew if I took one, you know, to pay that utility bill or buy that new stove or whatever, there's just be no going back. Once you break the seal, you right. break the seal. Exactly. Which jibed with what Kenny Urell, you know, in Brooklyn said, like, I took that $50 bill and then it was like a thousand and then it was 5,000 and then it was 10,000. And then like a year and a half later. I'm moving kilos of coke on Long Island and like bodyguarding drug lords. So, who were your sources for this documentary in Brooklyn? And did you uh, did you talk with the former corrupt police officers? Yeah, they were the sources. They were the so sources. The director of the film, who's a longtime collaborator and close friend of mine, Chiller Russell, like um, I call him the gangster whisperer <laughs> because awesome. he has a knack for for talking with uh, criminals. Um, I don't know what that says about him, and I don't know what it says about me that I like to ride with this guy so much. But, but uh, we both just get along with criminals, you know. And I don't know how to put it other than that. Like, as, I guess maybe they just don't sense the judgment, or they just like sense that we're like receptive to their stories. And you know, it comes down to it. Like, there's a there's a theme to the movies, or the motif to the movies we've been working on, which is that we kind of find gangsters who are in the autumn of their years. And want to tell the stories of back in the day, and the stories that gangster ha- gangsters have of back in the day, whether it was East New York or Moscow or you know Cartagena or wherever, right? Guadalajara are fascinating. Yeah. So I guess to answer your question, yeah, we talked. We talked with the with the cops, and they was like, you know, these are guys that if they'd been approached by filmmakers or journalists, you know, twenty years ago, never would have talked. What do you think that is when? When they're in those kind of twilight years, and they're like, "Oh, I can finally talk about it." Is it just the you know it, it's time to talk about? Is it has it run its course so they're not going to get in trouble? Or okay, so good question. I mean, let me jump to another film that I worked on that, that came out this year. Actually, it's called Operation Odessa, and Operation Odessa was about um, this plot that a uh, uh, there was a plot to sell a submarine to, to uh, the Cali cartel in, in Colombia. But one of, I can run down the story in more detail in a minute. Okay. But one of the principal <laughs> characters in it is this guy, Nelson Yester, who is still like on the FBI's most wanted list. He's a fugitive from justice. He was a Cuban spy who was sent by the Cuban government to Miami on the Mariel boat lift 
Like, if you ever seen Scarface, that's how Scarface starts. Yeah. He was on that. He was sent to be a spy in America, posing as somebody who'd been released from an insane asylum. Well, he got to South Florida, you know, whatever that was, like 83, and took a look at what was going on. It was like, well, fuck this. I'm going to be a spy and a Coke dealer. And then he, you know, became a big-time Coke dealer, wound up being, like, one of the main conduits for Pablo Escobar. Um and, you know, eventually, like, had to flee the United States, lives in South Africa. You know, had, what is his motivation for talking to us? His motivation for talking to us was, and we have this great sort of sequence in the film where there's all these federal agents. We're asking him on camera, do you think we'll ever be able to get this guy to talk to us? And they're like, not only will he never talk to you, you will never be able to find this guy. And then we cut to, like, you know, miking him up on his plane in South Africa. Ah, nice. But... Why did he want to... We were interviewing some of his former like running buddies in Moscow. And Tiller, the, my friend, the director, got a text message from him, from, from Tony, the guy in South Africa, saying, I hear that you're in Moscow interviewing the waiters. Why don't you come to Africa and interview the chef? So to answer your original question, this guy, he's in his late 50s, probably. You know, he's got more money than he can ever spend, I would imagine, but he's basically living by himself. He's, he's, he can never go back to his... His kids are still in the United States. He can never probably see them again. And um, he's probably just facing some kind of reckoning and wants to tell his story, you know? Mm -hmm. wants, to, wants to document his life in some way, or at least his version of it. Because the versions of his life have been told by the federal law enforcement in the United States for, for decades. You know, and there's been like media coverage of him here and there. He wanted to tell his version of his story. Did, go ahead. Oh, so when you're when you're dealing with criminals, um, you know, and especially when you're looking to them to be sources and they're currently, you know, in the criminal world, how do you get them to trust you? You know, as, as a journalist who's going to tell that story, how do you get, you know, down on their level and build that level of trust? Well, it helps at this point to have a body of work that you can point to be like see these movies this is what we do that helps a lot um but i guess the first thing i would say is that you got to take the time to get to know them before you try and put them on camera you can't just show up with a crew even if you know and just and just you need to kind of roll with somebody and be a part of their scene for at least a couple of days ideally you know, before you before you sit down and do the interview and let them kind of sort of like sniff you out and get a feel for you. So yeah. do you, so in that situation, do you go there and with no intention to film? You're just like, this is hangout day number three. Yeah, that's that's ideal. You know, I mean, sometimes I mean, when we went to when we went to South Africa to interview this guy, not knowing whether or not he was going to actually agree to do an interview. I mean, we were showing up with, you know, with a director of photography and and with the crew, I, I think like five, and then had to hire another, you know, four or five guys uh, in Johannesburg. But um, uh, you know, we certainly didn't like show up with cameras at the first meeting with this guy. I mean, that's not going to work. You know, it was like a couple dinners and a lunch and like hanging out and drinking coffee and brandy, and you know, you, you sort of circle around to like, well, will you go on camera? You know, but you listen to their stories and then. And then you get a non-committal response, and then you kind of keep circling back to it, 
until one morning he's like, okay, let's do this. You know, meet me at this airplane hangar. You let them take the lead is how I would say. Did you say meet me at this airplane hangar? That's what he's, yeah. Dude, that's so criminal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 He's a pilot. I mean, he was, he was trained by the Cuban government to be a pilot and he, um, he keeps a, uh, it's a fighter jet, but it's it's de-weaponized. It doesn't have any guns or missiles or anything, but it's a fighter jet that he keeps at all times fueled up and ready to go with a couple of like really nice suits and a million dollars in cash in the, in, the, in the second seat in the cockpit just in case. He's what gonna... does a million dollars in cash look like? You know, that's a good question because one time one of the, it, one of the um, uh, sort of the cards that turns in Operation Odessa, I, I don't want this to be too much of a spoiler, is at one point he comes into possession of $10 million in cash. And the director, Tiller, asked him that on camera. He's like, what does $10 million look like? And he said, it's a lot of paper, man. <laughs> He's like, when you get $10 million, you realize that's a lot of paper. So a million dollars still looks like kind of a lot of paper. But the $10 million he had was not like bank bills nicely wrapped in a large briefcase. So that's what it looks like. A million dollars will fit in a briefcase yeah. if it's hundreds. Yep. Yep, it will for sure. What, how do you know, Dustin? Have you seen a million dollars? <laughs> I've never seen a million dollars, but I have seen $66,000 in a brief. I think, I think the most I've ever seen... Actually, you know what? No, I've seen $100,000. Really? Yeah. Where'd you see that at? My dad. It was during Christmas time after Borderline. Dang, I want Christmas time at your house. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it was $100,000. I, I, he may correct me after he hears this. <laughs> He's like, where'd you see... Give me the $100,000. Um, you are currently working on a Lorena Bobbitt documentary. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's a documentary series, actually. It's okay. It's going to be a uh, four-part series uh, on Amazon. Um, I'd say it'll probably come out early next year. And it's on the Lorena uh, and John Bobbitt case, which was about 25 years ago. Oh, I, over 25 I remember it from my childhood. Yeah. It, it was, yeah. yeah. And can, can you uh, give us a quick synopsis sure. of that? Sure. So um, John Wayne Bobbitt, which is his actual name. Uh, was an ex-Marine who was living with his young wife, Lorena, who was an immigrant from Ecuador um, in uh, uh, northern Virginia, Manassas, Virginia. And um, they had a tumultuous relationship. Uh, she alleges that he was physically and sexually and emotionally abusive for years, I believe her, uh, prior to the incident. And the incident was that one night after he came home from a night of drinking with a friend, uh, according to her, he sexually assaulted her. But what is a indisputed fact is that she uh, cut off his penis with a kitchen knife in the middle of the night. Jeez. Yes. And left the house with it. Do we know what, what that kitchen knife looks like? What yes, type of kitchen knife? I have knife? seen the knife. I've seen the actual The real knife. knife. It okay. is, yes, it is framed behind glass in the Manassas Police Department evidence room in Manassas, Virginia, despite their claims over the decades to have destroyed it. It is framed behind glass. Yes, I've seen Jeez. it. Yeah. Like like a trophy? Yeah. Yeah, exactly like a trophy. You know what they've also got is the, the DC sniper case. You guys remember that? The Beltway oh, yeah, sniper? Yeah. Yep. They also have the like the like whatever they those two killers like rigged up to be able to fire rifles out of the back of their car the like sniper's nest they yeah have, yeah they have that as well they're like thinking about creating a museum with the starting with the the bobbit knife and the sniper's nest and then going from there and creating like a cop museum which probably be a pretty good tourist attraction yeah but anyway she um yeah she she basically she cut off his dick and ran out of the apartment with it and threw it and we were like 
driving from once we were on the ground we were like driving from the apartment to where the penis was found which was this like this like kind of vacant lot across the street from a 7-eleven we were like well she's driving like she had to kind of do a left-handed hook shot up over the car to like get it in that field so it's like <laughs> did, did you gonna... recreate it well we didn't With we did dildo <laughs> 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 uh, i no. feel bad that we're talking about this dude's dick like that man I... uh, this guy has been roasted since it happened oh my god i mean it's just it's terrible i thought did they try and put it back on when they, they did put it? it back on it was actually the first ever successful penis reattachment surgery in medical history. We interviewed both surgeons that did it. It was uh, it, kind of an amazing... Did you see any pictures of it? Oh, yes, yes. I saw well, the picture of the yeah. stump. I saw the pictures of the surgery. Is it, now, yeah. is he able to get an erection? Uh, yeah, he is, and he did porn to prove it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Cody, are you going to the internet right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, that's going to be interesting. That's pretty cool. It's on, uh, on Amazon. Yeah, it'll be on Amazon. And it was, I mean, it, it sort of came, the, the, the case... This all happened at the at the height of the like, you know, so-called gender wars of the early '90s. It was around the time of the Anita Hill uh, testimony, Clarence Thomas, and it was our society was having a moment similar to what it is now with the with the We Too movement. It was like a similar sort of sudden like heightened awareness of of uh, issues of um, gender gender based violence and sexual harassment at mm -hmm. work and things like that. So. So was the idea that, that, you know, Lorena Bobbitt was kind of sticking up for herself and like, you know, taking power back kind of? Well, she was, there was, there was, yes, there were, there were a lot of uh, feminists who immediately sort of raised her as an icon of female empowerment. I don't think she had any of that going through her mind. And she was a very sort of reluctant uh, symbol for a movement. She didn't really want any part of that. But yeah, there were a lot of people that imparted that kind of meaning to her action because of when it when it occurred. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I heard you actually got to hang out, spent a day with uh, John. Yes, I did. I spent two days with John Wayne Bobbitt in Las Vegas last uh, uh, last year. Late. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, deeply weird. Deeply <sighs> weird. Like he is still completely obsessed with this case. Like it still just completely dominates his life. The, the court case, the, or just what everything. Happened, because well, you see, he got like, he got like a good kind of like hit of four or five years of fame after this happened. He was on the Howard Stern show repeatedly. He did pornos. He was like paid to make appearances at, you know, strip clubs. You know, I mean, he flew around the country. Like, you know, he went to a bunch of like Ron Jeremy like you know, porno night parties, poolside parties in Vegas, like whatever. He was like, he was a, you know, he was a solid like C-list celebrity. Yeah, yeah. B-list for a bit. And then C-list, I mean, that, I mean, you know, before that he'd been a, you know, he'd been a like broke ass ex-marine loading boxes for a living who could never keep a job, like off on again, off again, bartender kind of thing. So, you know, it, it, in a way, at least the way that he sees it, getting his dick chopped off was the best thing that ever happened to him. Or at least it, 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 led, it led to like this fame and fortune that he never would have had. Now, he got taken advantage of by a bunch of people. Like the first porno he made was one of the top five grossing pornos, like most profitable pornos ever made. This is back in the VHS days. You know, okay. I mean, it's, they sold a shit ton of these, of these because everybody wanted to answer your question. Can this guy get it up? You know, there were people buying pornos that, that, that that's probably the only porno they ever bought in their life. But he didn't, he didn't see a lot of that money. And he's like, you know, he's not doing great financially now. Now he like, he's got like, you know, 
if you go to Vegas to go like those wedding chapels, you know, like there's several of them that offer the, the shotgun John, wedding ones. Yeah, that <laughs> they offer like the John Wayne Bobbitt package. So if you want to get married by John Wayne Bobbitt, they'll like call and get him out of bed in the middle of the night, and he'll come and marry you. Is it really called that? The yes, John Wayne, Wayne, Wayne Bobbitt, Bobbitt package? Because of course, what else are you going to call it? <laughs> right. What up? And 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 uh, Lorena, how how many years did she end up serving? She actually got she she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And she was committed to a state mental hospital for, I should know this since I'm working on a documentary, but I'm going to say it was, it was less, than, less than three months, more than one month, less than three months. So if you're like, nowadays, if you're ever like in a kitchen and you see her and there's like a knife in the room, man, I, you just, you, you got to hesitate for a second, right? One of many very odd things about Mr. Bobbitt is that he now has that knife set, the exact knife set. He has, uh, he has that in his kitchen now. Like he and bought, that's on purpose. Not yet. Yes. Yes. He's like, you know, I wanted to have the same knife set that was in our... I was like, fucking why? You know? Yeah. But he does. Yeah. Are, are there any Are there any answers to these questions? I mean, as psychologically, like, what? why would he do that? I, I don't know. Other than he... he I think he, he, st- I, he sees... This is my take, is that those are the glory days for him. And so anything he can have around that reminds him of the glory days, because it's not like, I mean, he's got, you know, he's, he's got, he'll, he'll, he'll sit around and watch like coverage of the case, you know, like Donald Trump watches his rallies. It's like sort of the same sort of, and by the way, he's a huge Trump fan and supporter, needless to say, I think, (laughs) but, um, is that his, his ego is very much connected to that fleeting weird uniquely american fame that he had you know and he was back in the day he was like a very good looking guy like kind of in a kendall way you know kind of could have been a poster boy for the marines and she was very attractive as well so it's like it's weird it's like in this country it's like if 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 they if either of them would not have been as uh physically attractive as they were i think the story would not have been as big a story you know yeah. So, and so what, what is she, what's L- Lorena up to these days? Uh, she's married. Um, she has, uh, oh. Oh. she has a daughter. Um, she seems like, you know, pretty happy actually. And, yeah. and how does, how does this case fit into the beginning of the 24 hour news cycle? Yeah. Well, it was, it was, it was sort of a, um, a warm up for OJ. That's what it was. You know, it was, it was like the, the, one of the first times that, that that criminal proceedings were packaged as television entertainment. I mean, obviously, like trials were, you know, heavily covered in salacious ways by the media. You know, going back to the Lindbergh baby kidnapping or wherever you want to go with that. But in terms of in terms of like twenty four hour coverage, meaning like CNN is breaking away from stories about. Um, you know, Clinton having a summit on nuclear disarmament with Russia, they like broke away from the trial coverage for that. And there wasn't even like important shit going on in the trial. And they're like flooded with angry viewers. I mean, that kind of thing. So, you know, a small town in Virginia just besieged by, by satellite trucks. And it, this was a new phenomenon at the time. And we interviewed, we interviewed some of the reporters for the Washington Post, print reporters. Like, this is basically pre-internet. You know, the, the Washington Post had a very rudimentary website, but they weren't even trying to, like, update it every day. You know, it was more like information about the newspaper. Yeah. So they were just getting their asses kicked by TV news, and they were under this incredible pressure from their editors to, like, be more competitive. But 
that when the TV news is breaking a story every 30 minutes and you're coming out once, maybe twice a day, you're cooked from the jump. Yeah. You know, so it was interesting to get their perspective on that. It was like there was no there was no way to break a story online. So the TV journalists were just killing them. But it was just um, it was just a combination of factors. It was it was the um, it was after the Gulf War. I think the Gulf War, it's sort of like whetted the public's palate for constant news, you know, like because that was a 24 hour story. And that really sort of like birthed CNN as a major media force. And um, uh, tabloid shows, Current Affair, Hard Copy, you know, where Bill O'Reilly was like a tabloid guy back then was and they were they were skyrocketing in the ratings and their sensibilities were bleeding over into mainstream network news coverage and the way they covered stories right then, right when the Bobbitt story happened. So it's just this confluence of all these all these factors. And do you think we're we're still? I mean, we have to be still feeling the hangover from all that. I mean, it's maybe not necessarily a hangover, but we are we are experiencing the repercussions of all of that. In yeah. that, how it influenced media well, it's, now. It's basically just snowballed from there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, it was the blurring of the lines between news and entertainment is is what I think was like um, an, an unfortunate result yeah. so of, of those it, cases it's it's unfortunate for us as people who need to consume the news and the media but for those who produce it it seems like it's been quite a good thing for them because the more entertaining they make it the more divisive they make it it seems the more money they make yeah i mean i you know i, I mentioned cnn i mean it, it's cnn is obviously like they're, they're doing some tough reporting on donald trump right now but you know i and people have a very short memory um, but I remember the way that CNN would cover Donald Trump's rallies when Donald Trump was just a candidate, which is like in full, without commentary, without context. Donald Trump's going to get on stage and say a bunch of crazy racist shit. Let's cut to that right now mm-hmm. and just show it, you know, for an hour. Yeah. So they bear a lot of responsibility for the fact that he's in the White House. And now they're like, you know, kicking his ass on a regular basis with their tough coverage. But it's like to me, it's like, is it all just driven by ratings? Like they're like back then just showing people Donald Trump rallies like jack their ratings. So that's what they're going to do now. Like, you know, punching Donald Trump in the nose on a daily basis, get some viewers. So that's what they're going to do. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's a motivation that's not just like, let's present the information. There's like other motivations behind news now, it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, every, everything is siloed. You know, I mean, I watch, I, I go to the gym and I like I flip back and forth between Fox and MSNBC and CNN. It's like three different realities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they all have their, you know, and you know what you're going to get from each of them. You know, and CNN is moving like increasingly, increasingly left. Um, I, but it's, uh, you know, I'm, I, I've been a journalist since, since the early 90s. And, and so I saw, I witnessed the, the business uh change a lot it's funny that i said business and not you know um well there is a business end to it i yeah, mean that's, absolutely there has to be i mean otherwise you know you don't get to you don't get to write and you don't get to publish right but it's um they used to be the, the lanes used to be really clear there was the mainstream news and there was the alternative media now it just seems like it's a fucking free-for-all yeah we're getting the story right is like secondary to getting it out there first and really it's just all about you know clicks and, and viewers and eyeballs so do you think like this is affecting um our ability to be independent thinkers you know versus like if you just if the news came on once a night or you read it once in the morning you'd sit back and you'd be able to think about these things whereas now it seems like you don't even have to think about them because you can just turn on the tv and someone's thinking about them for you 
No, yeah, I think you nailed it. You know, I think you nailed it. And it's just like, it's such, everything is so fast paced. It just feels like you're on a treadmill running if you're trying to like stay, stay on top of stories, you know, and you, you, it's, it, it, and you feel like you, you've got to check your phone every five minutes or, or you're going to miss like the next like, and I, and I know that it's that like the system's kind of game like that. And still I find myself doing it. It's hard not to. Yeah. Yeah. So you started off as a print journalist, right? Yeah. And now you're you're making documentaries, right? Do you think that's a normal trajectory given today's journalistic climate? Well, it worked well for me. I mean, I found like that a lot of the, um, the a lot of the skill set required is is the same. At least what I do when in making documentaries, which is you know research, reporting, you know developing sources, gaining sources trust, developing source networks, you know so the social engineering of like figuring out if there's a certain group of people where you're trying to like get in with them figuring out which is the which person is sort of the fulcrum point you need to get them on your your side and then the rest will will fall into place um so for me it was a pretty natural transition uh i think i've been very fortunate you know i mean there's a lot of a lot of print journalists i know from from back in the day who have gone into other other fields just out of sheer necessity that where they're where they're not able to to use their talents in the same way do you think that it was your perseverance I think I was mainly just lucky, frankly. I mean, you make your own luck. I'm a firm believer in that, that you do make your own luck. And part of that, and what I mean by that is sometimes it's just being able to, to sense an opportunity or, or to be in the right place uh, because you put yourself there. But I, I also have been very, very fortunate. So yeah. when did you first get to Alaska? And was it journalism that brought you here? No, I first came to Alaska in 1978. My parents moved up here. Uh, you know, kind of, I guess that's a little bit of the tail end of the oil boom years, but it was still oil money that brought them here. They were both in uh, education, and then the Anchorage School District made them, you know, very uh, great uh, job offers. Um, so, yeah, we came up here in 78, and I, I uh, lived up here through uh, high school and then lived down the lower 48 basically for the next quarter century and then moved back about uh, seven years ago. Uh, then my first job out of college was I worked for the Anchorage Daily News in uh, 1993 and 1994. Yeah, back well, when it was a great newspaper. Yeah. Back when it was a great newspaper, what do you yeah. mean by that? Yeah. Well, I mean, this was like, it just, the Daily News had just won the newspaper war with the Anchorage Times, like the, the Anchorage Times. It had been purchased by McClatchy, but it's a big staff. I mean, it had a business department, it had a features department, you know, it had a metro department. Um, you know, it was running a weekly like entertainment magazine uh, and the weekly Wheel Askins magazine. I mean, it was just like, you know, print print was still kind of king. I mean, it's not and I don't I'm not look, I think the Daily News now is is better than it was a couple of years ago. But I don't think that that by and large, any newspaper in a midsize city is as good as it was in the 90s or the 80s just because the money's not there. You know, I mean, I also after the after the Daily News, I went to work for the Phoenix New Times, which is the flagship of a chain of alternative news weeklies where it was just like I didn't know how good I had it. You know, my story quota was one story a month. Um, the papers were fat. I mean, 200 pages of uh, people were paid well for their work. And it seemed like there was no end in sight when, in fact, the end was just around the corner and it was called the Internet. But, uh, yeah, I, I was, yeah, print was, print was still king in the early nineties when I started out. And the, the new times actually, they, they just, uh, stopped printing papers, right? Pretty recently. 
No, they're still printing papers. They are still printing papers. Yeah. What was it? What was that big news that came out about them like a year or two ago? It was the back page scandal. The guys that started the New Times are like under federal indictment right now. Okay. For, for you know, various, uh, I don't know what the exact charges are, but they started, they started backpage.com. Yeah. And um, it, you know, it, it's, it's, they've been accused of knowingly facilitating illegal prostitution with this website. And uh, I think a few years ago, you know, they recognized the legal jeopardy. So they spun off Backpage.com from the, from the you know, journalism operation that's made it a separate company, um, which was smart. But, you know, I remember when I worked at the Phoenix New Times and I worked at the Denver Westward and other alt-weekly, like there was a certain day by which you had to get in your classified ads. And we would go like, you know, like check out the classified ad section because there'd be so many escorts coming in on that day to place their ads. It was just like a circus, you know, and there'd be women coming in with their pimps and stuff. And there'd be like conflicts in the lobby. It was just, it was always like, you know, street theater of the highest order. So point being that, that prostitution ads or escort ads or whatever have always been a mainstay of the ad revenue of alternative media. So I don't know why the federal government is now going after them for Backpage.com. I don't completely understand it. Back in the day, the the press, I've heard stories about the Anchorage Press, uh, there being lines of prostitutes. That's true. I witnessed that as well. You did? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was always like the, it, 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 something about the complicated lives that escorts lead. They wait till the last minute to come in and place their classified ad for the next week, but they know when the deadline is, right? Even if So in Phoenix, in Denver, at the Anchorage Press, whenever that deadline was, there'd be people coming in with their checks and their copy for that next week. And it was obvious. I mean, you know, it's obvious what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Things have changed. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> well, now you see with the alternative, it's a lot of the uh, the, the weed and the marijuana shops. and you know, Yeah. It, it, and, and a lot of uh, advertorial, uh, I have noticed. And, you know, they call it sponsored content, um, really pushing. Yeah. So I think that, that that definitely takes the edge off it and it turns it more into a shopper. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I don't. I don't even pick up the press anymore. Anyway, yeah, which is sad. But I mean, you know, um, what really bums me out about it was uh, the article that I wrote after I was laid off from the Anchorage Press, and talking to all you guys, you know, all the old heads at the Anchorage Press, you know, uh, you, uh, Susie Buchanan, uh, Nick Coltman, who started it, um, and just hearing. I mean, such great things, you know, uh, I, I forget exactly who said it. Uh, it might even been you that people were so stoked to work at the Anchorage Press that they probably would have done it for free. Uh-huh. And I, I don't know if that exists anymore, you know, that that drive. And and if it does, I, well, I know for a fact that the people running the Anchorage Press right now aren't the ones to um, affect that drive. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't think the Anchorage Press is that place anymore, for sure. You know, speaking speaking of kind of that article you wrote, uh, the Anchorage Press is dead, and um, one thing, I, and I think it was it was your quote, David, and you had said something like, revenue drives content, or should content drive revenue? Well, uh, when I was <laughs> when I was in my when I was in my twenties, I would have like you know, fought somebody to the death practically over saying that, you know, that, that, that the content will drive the revenue, right? Meaning that 
all emphasis should be placed on um, the best stories, and 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 that will cause people to pick up the paper and et cetera, et cetera. Now, I think that there actually should be a uh, uh, just for the just for the health of the few surviving papers that are out there, there can be a um, sort of natural uh, tension or not like a tense symbiosis between the two, but you can't do sponsored content and not expect to lose readers, mm-hmm. not expect to hemorrhage readers, you know, especially for an alternative publication, whether it's in Phoenix or Anchorage or wherever. Is it important for local reporters to be the ones reporting on local issues, or is it possible for a transplant to effectively report? I think it's really difficult for somebody to effectively report on Alaska without having lived here for at least a couple of years, you know, if not being from here, frankly. This is a really complicated state, really complicated city to cover. Um, but the 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 weak uh, local news like around the country I, I see as just being a, a huge problem right now. And I think we're seeing that in Anchorage right now. Um, uh, there's, I, I mean, I know that there's stories that are just not getting reported. And I don't, I think a lot of it's just driven by economics like we've been talking about. But I guess to, 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 answer, your, to answer your question, um, I think in Alaska in particular is difficult for, for new arrivals to, to uh, effectively operate as journalists in. And so you were working at the Anchorage Daily News and the press in the 90s. Yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. So tell me, what was the, in your opinion, what was the identity of Anchorage as a city then versus Anchorage as a city now in 2018? Oh, great question. I mean... It seemed, I've thought about this a bit lately, and it seemed to me like I'm going to wrap in Anchorage in like the, from the late 70s all the way through the, all the way through at least the mid 90s, meaning Anchorage felt much more like a distinct place than it does now. And I think that the internet is a driving force towards a kind of monoculture anywhere you go, meaning like, um... Anchorage just feels a lot more like Fort Worth and vice versa, I think, than than it did back uh, before information and culture was based so much online. And I'm not necessarily knocking like the, the like the internet, but but Anchorage felt felt more separated from the rest of the world. Like being here, you felt more um, isolated than than I do living here now. Uh, it felt more like um, like a place uh, unto itself that was that was far away from the mainstream of America than it does now. Well, I remember growing up in the 90s, and uh, even with like music or any kind of culture, it seemed like it always got here later. That was just the thing, you know? I'd go down to my grandma's house in Wisconsin every summer, and it was like, I'd have a CD, and they'd be like, dude, we've been listening to that forever. Right. You know what I mean? And I think now those cultures and... You know, what's trending as far as like popular culture is concerned are permeating Anchorage a lot quicker. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm interpreting from what you were saying, David, is that this place is a little less special. I mean, at least it's perceived that way. Me and Dustin grew up in the snowboard and skateboard culture in Alaska, and that that scene was decimated, you know, after kind of an infrastructure, a shop. my dad's shop borderline was you know was out and there have been a couple people that are recently trying to reinvigorate that and you can see it happening you know people need a they need a core they need somewhere to go it can't all just live online 
Right. Does does Anchorage have a core? I mean, is it is Anchorage in essence lost right now? Whoa. <laughs> let, me, let me voice the thought I had, and then I'll then I'll see if I can come back around to that. Um, at the same time that that maybe Anchorage, the, the Anchorage, as you put it, feels less special. I think that it that it's that it's um, the flip side of that is that in a way it's never been as cool to be from Alaska outside Alaska than it is now. Mm-hmm. Like Alaska is cool. Like the North is cool. The Arctic is cool in a way that you know it, that I. I remember going on the lower 48 when I was a kid and you tell people you're from Alaska and they would kind of look at you like you were from another planet or something. It wasn't necessarily something that was, that was cool. And now I think it is, you know, even though I would say that Alaska and Anchorage is less cool than it was, you know, 25 years ago, it's more cool to be from here to outsiders. So I don't know what the deal is that Anchorage lacking a core. Um, it feels like it lacks a core identity to me in a way, but but like with all these perceptions, I, I'm like, how much of that is my just like getting older and more calcified in a way? I'm in my late forties now, you know. Uh, but it seems it feels that way to me. That what what gives a city its core? Then I would say shared experience, and it's it's and because people are spending so much of their lives on their phones and online everywhere, not just in Anchorage, the experience that they're sharing is with everybody online, which is not like necessarily the physical place where they live, you know? So, you know, Fortnite has more of a core identity right now than, than Anchorage. It's like a distinct culture. Yeah. Right. Um, and Anchorage is a lot more diverse too than it was in the nineties or the, especially the eighties or the seventies. I think that's probably a good thing, or at least it would be if, if people would get to know one another more. You know, there's this kind of like this, this, this old school kind of frontier, you know, rough and tumble edge to the city that's, that's not there anymore. You know, I remember downtown Anchorage when it was like downtown Anchorage still, you could still see the remnants of when it was really wild, you know, the Montana club and the monkey wharf, all those joints. But anyway. Um, so it used to be crazier? And a different kind of crazy. Different kind of crazy. Different kind of crazy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely uh, um, a city. I mean, it seems like it's gone through gone through phases, but this city feels like really sketchy to me right now, too. I mean, you, just watching people on the street, like it's just like the kind of reporting I've done is like I, you know, I, I, I clock I clock things, like especially when I'm when I'm on foot, you know, just like try staying like really aware. There's just a lot of people on dope in this city right now, just a lot, like way more than I ever remember there being. Like not drunk, like like you know, on meth or on heroin or on. I mean, the spice thing seems to have subsided a bit, but people just fucked up. Like <laughs> Midtown's kind of a it's, it's a wild place early in the morning. Especially yeah. I get up early and I walk around Midtown. It's like wow, this is uh, this is noticeably different. Yes, yes. I don't remember anything like this as a kid being present in this city. I mean, there's always been like homeless population in Anchorage, but now there's like this different set of homeless in Anchorage that are like tweaker, tweaker homeless, you know? Yeah. Not like drunk homeless, like methed out homeless. Like that are stealing cars. Stealing shit. Yeah. Like junkie street thief homeless that um that are out there, you know, banging around, tweaking around stuff. They're not standing on the corner holding a the sign. They're out there like sketching around like stealing shit. I mean it's just uh uh, and they, they feel um, like more of a, 
um, more of a hazard, I guess. Well, anyway, I'll leave off on that thought. You know, it's, I think it's interesting to hear from someone who's, who's older than us, Dustin, um, about that, because we've talked about similar things. Dustin's from Fairbanks. I'm from here in Anchorage. And I have absolutely noticed, um, at least in my mind, that this, this place seems more dangerous. But I don't know whether that's a perception of mine because of where I live. I live, you know, um, downtown, kind of like where stuff happens, you know. So is that different than living, you know, on the south side where I grew up for a little while or on Muldoon where I grew up, you know, since I was a kid? So uh, I, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Well, you know, I'm right now currently living in a pretty nice neighborhood. You know, it's, it's families, um, you know, two-story homes, and people have cameras on their houses. It's something they're doing now. So I think that the entire community of Anchorage, it's like just becoming accepted that there is crime and they're used to it. I mean, I got out of my car the other day and looked in, there's a club, the thing on the steering wheel mm-hmm. on somebody else's car, right? And it's like- That's old school. Yeah, that's old school. But I think that we're like just getting used to it or comfortable with the fact that there is more crime here. Yeah. Yeah. Subjectively to me, this, this place feels more da- much more dangerous than I remember it being in late 70s, 80s, all the way through the 90s. Like, it, it feels like a more dangerous city to me in a very significant way. And part of that's just seeing what's going on in the streets, and part of that's just—I mean, there's—it just seems like there's a there's a there's a lot of uh, uh, petty crime that you just hear about, like you know, in your social circles, people getting shit ripped off like all the time, you know. And that's all that's all drugs, I think. I think it's all drugs. It's all junkies that, that's driving that. The like the theft of bikes, cars, propane tanks, shoes, anything you leave not bolted down outside your house. I mean, it just it didn't used to be like that. Do you think that? That maybe you're possibly more aware of this because you have kids now. Um, I, I certainly like. Uh, I, well, no, actually, I don't. I think that I, I think that I've always been like kind of streetwise, at least as an adult, and and just kind of my nature, driven by the nature of the work that I do to kind of see what's going on around me when I'm out and about. Um, subtle things, hand to hand, like people that. You can tell by the way they're moving their eyes. They're they're looking for an opportunity. I mean, I just see a lot more of it than I remember here. You've yeah. done a lot of um, like real alt weekly articles, meaning that you have been around a lot of sketchy people. Now that you have kids, has your perspective or the way that you pursue a story has that changed at all? Oh yeah, I don't pursue the same kind of stories anymore. And they're you know no. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not about to stay up for 72 hours with crystal meth addicts <laughs> to, to write about it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I just, I just don't pursue the same kinds of stories so, that I used to. So back when you were reporting on the, you know, that other side, what were some of your favorite stories that you wrote? Well, the one, one where I stayed up for three days with with tweakers was was. Uh, uh, I think a high point, <laughs> but they, um, I lived on the street with, uh, we called them gutter punks or crusties in uh, Tempe, Arizona in the winter. Like all these kids, you know, they called themselves travelers, um, would just show up on mill Avenue, like near Arizona state university. And I was just fascinated by this. Like it would just like show up like some sort of reverse winter migration. And, um, and so I just went and kind of wasn't pretending to be one of them, but Again, talking with them, spending time with them, spending days with them before you take out a notebook or a recorder, 
get a few people on your side or at least like recognize you when you're down there. And then, and then eventually just like went and lived with them for the better part of a week, followed different crews of them around and wrote about it. That's one of my favorite stories I've ever, I ever wrote. Certainly that the, the, uh, the combined process of the re- really was into the reporting and then also was really happy with the, with the writing process. And sometimes those, those don't match up. Yeah. And where, if we wanted to read that, how, oh, yeah, how so could we read it? It was the Phoenix New Times, um, Mill Rats. Was, that was a, another nickname for him because uh, it was Mill Avenue. Instead of Mall Rats, it was around the Mall Rats era. Yeah, yeah. But people called them Mill Rats. So that was the, that was the headline. So if you Google Mill Rats in Phoenix New Times, it'll, it'll bring it up. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, how, how do you think the, the pervasiveness of lies affect a society? Well, whether it's in in journalism, whether it's from yeah. politicians, I mean, it just seems like in this moment in history, there's a lot of lying going on, and a lot of people who are either completely against it or don't care. Well, let, let, I mean, let's kind of take a look at that a little deeper, right? So you have you have this like four chan, right? And that's where people are spreading conspiracy things like the QAnon thing, right? Mm-hmm. You have you have even like uh, politicians who sometimes QAnon. Lie. Oh, QAnon, yeah, um, politicians who lie, right? So you kind of got whether you know misinformation, whether you have like biased reporting, whether you like you said you can look at CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC, and you're living in three different realities, right? So we are living in a world of lies and alternate re- realities. I think it's like what's going on right now. I find it personally, like my subjective experience is, is that it's just like profoundly disorienting. Meaning, like, at what point did the truth like become irrelevant? <laughs> it seems like that. It seems like, like finding out what the actual facts are is just irrelevant to the discussion. And if that's the case, how can you have a discussion? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. if facts don't matter. How can you have a policy discussion? How can you have a debate over issues if like facts don't matter? If, fa- if facts don't even play into it, and and any I I I don't know where this all how this all plays out. But my again my personal experience is just fine. I just feel like disoriented. Like what has happened? Because when I was an investigative print journalist, like the rules were pretty clear. If you like busted a politician, they stayed busted. Like if you, like if you nailed them on some facts, like that was the game, you know, uh, that doesn't seem to be, there's doesn't seem to be accountability to the truth. And I don't know where that's going to take us. It's scary. It feels really scary right now. Yeah. You know, so I try and factor that into my, what we were talking about earlier, like my perception of what's going on in Anchorage. I mean, I, I think I'm pretty grounded in reality most of the time, but, um, there's just, I do have a, like, at what point is my unease over the, uh, the larger goings on, um, in our country on a, you know, social political level, like bleeding over to my perception of like what the tweaker's doing at, you know, midtown corner. But, um, yeah, it's just, uh. Had the rules changed and they changed fast, you know, and they changed without uh, discussion, it seems like. I was a substitute teacher for a while at an elementary school, and then now I work with uh, youth at a um, teen media center. And one thing that, that I've realized is, say if I'm asked a question by either the elementary school student or the youth at the teen center, and they're like, you know, maybe why is that wrong? And I have so many things going through my head. Maybe it's about, maybe they ask a question about why is it 
wrong for this politician to lie. And I have like maybe like a hundred anecdotes in my head that I'm ready to spit out. But essentially, why, why is it wrong? And maybe what I'm thinking, the question I'm thinking about answering is, if if one of your your kids were to ask, you know, see something like that, like that that person just lied on TV, why is that wrong, Dad? You know, how would you respond to that? I've had to respond to that recently, and it's 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 um. Good question. You know, it was a I good know. question. It was I, a good I'm question when my seven-year-old son asked me it. Um, and it, you know, it's it's that. At least in the case of our elected leaders, um, in the same way that in the same way that uh, I think uh, America has never quite lived up to what it purports to be, but like in its best years, it's at least trying. Like our elected officials are at least supposed to 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 try to carry the banner of um of being better you know and that means like not that means not 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 lying as a like normal course of action you know and having it be acceptable well, I, I think there's yeah there's a lot of things playing into this right now um we you know we talked about kind of the 24-hour news cycle right and as citizens in a democracy the truth and information is one of the like guiding things that we can use to like enable our freedoms enable our course of action enable discourse and it's our goal as a citizen to kind of react to the information but then there's other people who are out there whose job it is to like control the way we react mm -hmm. and in some cases that's the politician they want to get ahead of a story they want to they want to control the way you react to it so that they stay in power. And now the problem is it seems like the journalists are working hand in hand with the politicians to control how the citizens react to the story. They're taking away our ability to react independently to the news and information of the day. Yeah, because everything has so much spin on it. Every ball has so much spin on it. Yeah, I get that. I think what I told him too is that, like, and this speaks to your point, is that in a democracy, which is like our system of government in a very idealized way, which is everybody's supposed to like, you know, vote and decide that people have to be voting based on a common set of facts. And when the president or when another elected official is just knowingly distorting those facts on a daily basis, it makes democracy stop functioning properly. Because then it's not a debate over what to do about the facts of X, Y, and Z, then it's like, it's just, everything is just in chaos. You know, going off of that, that last question, I think maybe the follow-up to that as a kid asking an adult, the question is why is democracy important? Well, that's a good question, man. And I'm sure you've seen like the surveys of, of uh, your generation and the generation that's coming up behind you where, where, uh, people seem to be asking themselves that question and, and more and more. Whereas, like, I grew up in the Cold War era, and it was like democracy came with a cape, you know? Yeah. So uh, I I think that, I mean, we're we're way away from Arctic hip-hop at this point, which is fine. <laughs> but, I mean, I think it, it's I'm at least entertaining the notion of, like, maybe this shit doesn't work. Maybe it doesn't work. Well, At least not for us. Maybe not for the United States of America. Maybe this experiment's failing. I, I don't know. I think I think the problem is we just take it for granted when you don't have, say, like in the Cold War era when it was really easy to distinguish yourself 
from from you know say communism right and you could say well there's that or this right we don't even know what an alternative is so it's easy to take it for granted i've traveled um to algeria in the middle east and so for example they don't have some of the freedoms and rights we have i got pulled out of a car by a guy with a machine gun and illegally well it was a legal search but you know you can't just stop somebody and pull them out and search their car in america and then i went and visited visited a friend who was a journalist at one of their national newspapers and it was it was in a complex behind like a giant concrete wall with barbed wire all around it one way in and out guarded and that's where all the journalists of that country worked because it it was a dangerous job it was deadly right they had to be protected and they had to work there you know so there's there's certain things that can quickly go away for us that we take for granted and i think that i don't know if the if the other system would end up working for us i'm not i'm i don't want to be misunderstood i'm not advocating for for anything but uh but democracy you know i mean but having just been to norway and finland where things function really well you know I mean, when I mean, I was there when uh, Trump had his summit with Putin in, in Helsinki, and and the and the journalists like came together to to buy the billboards stretching from the airport to the place of their meeting about the, you know, about the the value that they place on the, on the free speech and free. Media this was in, in Finland. Country. Yeah, in Finland. And, and I'm and, sorry, what what did they do? Uh, the, uh, like I think it was the largest the largest daily newspaper in Helsinki. They purchased billboards going all the way from the airport to wherever that summit was held um, that were just sort of extolling the value of free speech and of a, an independent media, you know. And those okay. are I, – I would, I would argue that both Finland and Norway are, are high-functioning, you know, democracies. I mean, you go there, it's like there's, there's no homelessness, homelessness, at least not any visible homelessness. Everything feels like very safe. Everybody seems like really involved in being a – participant in the democracy i mean people have differences of opinions there are there are rival political parties along a similar spectrum to what we have here but it's just um it's a totally different vibe and it's a different level of uh engagement on a, in a general sense of how engaged people are in, in being a part of the process yep well you look you look at those countries and it's kind of uh they're, they're social democracies so they're they're going to be they're higher educated you know i, I believe colleges you know kind of give them for free there Yes, yeah, free. Yep, yep. If you I get mean, in, it's free. Yep. If you get in, exactly right. And then also, um, those societies are a lot more homogenous. They're they're less uh, less diversified culturally, racially than than we are. And so yeah. I wonder if that allows them to to come together easier. And I also wonder if they have reality television. <laughs> I believe they do. Yeah, they have reality TV. Okay. And they have the slow TV, too, where you'll just watch, like, watch a train going through a winter landscape for hours, and that's it. Like, really? Yeah, or just watch a fire. Yeah, in the same way that we, we watch a fire on Netflix. Yeah, right. <laughs> Is that yeah. an actual show? <laughs> yeah, there's there's two versions. There's an hour-long version, and I think there's a half-an-hour-long version. Are you bullshitting version. me, dude? I swear to God. Yeah. Look it up. I mean, do you have Netflix? Uh, Well, I had it until my ex-girlfriend changed her password, so no. <laughs> Not at the moment. <laughs> yeah, you you can uh, pick a few different fires. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Do I want bonfire or fireplace? <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do you feel right now? Then, since we're talking about kind of journalism and the, and the press, about Donald Trump's, you know, the the press is the enemy of the people. As as someone who's a journalist, how is that affecting you? Well, I. 
First of all, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I would call myself a journalist anymore. I think, I think at some point I crossed over into a documentary, <laughs> documentary filmmaker. I'm not, still, I'm not exactly sure when that happened, but, but I still, um, how does that make me feel? I I actually just think I I take that as just one you know one more sort of like asinine thing that's that's come out of his mouth recently. I mean, I I I don't think that he necessarily understands though the power that his words have. Meaning, I think that if he keeps talking shit like this about journalists, he's going to get somebody killed. I know that there was a a sort of like a leap um, on some of the media to ascribe that recent newsroom mass shooting, and it didn't have anything to do with Nothing, him. No, you know, yeah. but. But the like the pump is primed, okay, for for somebody like that guy that showed up with a gun at that pizza restaurant in D.C. or like that guy that showed up at the pizza Hoover, gate. I mean, Jesus, it, it's like it just only feels like a matter of time before somebody who's a real uh, follower yeah. follower of Trump like decides to to take that thought to its natural conclusion in their minds. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to be a high-profile like news anchor on CNN or MSNBC right now. I mean, I hope that they've got some pretty significant protection. But how does it make me feel? I just, you know, I just, um, I'm just wrestling with 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 how it makes me feel that uh, uh, I I felt like uh, this country isn't the one that I thought that I was living in. And I've had that feeling since he was elected. So the fact that he's up there saying that the media is the enemy of the people, I mean, that's just like one in like a, you know, a hundred or a thousand things that, that he said, or that he represents that I, that, that are uh, also contributing to this sense of disorientation that I seem to be coming back to repeatedly tonight. Yeah. So what, what do you think needs to happen to like regain homeostasis? Yeah, to reverse course. <laughs> Is it simply an election? Well, that's the. I think that's the best case scenario. I will say I don't. I don't want to see Trump impeached um, because I don't want to see Mike Pence become president. And um, I kind of want. I kind of want uh, Trump to leave the White House, sort of the, you know, to be elected out of the White House, I guess, and and to try and try and return things to a more orderly state. You know, I mean, obviously, uh, um, and I'm not, frankly, I'm no huge fan of the, of the Democratic Party either, but, but the, 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 a check, you know, on, on his power um, in, the, in the House uh, and would be a great thing, I think, to come out of the midterms. But I try and also, like, I think there's, a, I think there's an old Chinese saying that it's, like, basically translate to in every crisis there's opportunity. So... On my brighter days, I try and see like like things can just change so fast. It feels like, you know, that um, that that it's possible that maybe this country comes out on the other side of the Trump era, like a better place even than it was going in. I think it's possible, but I think it's also possible that, you know, it's, it's going to be President Pence and The Handmaid's Tale in five years. You know? <laughs> Love so, that show. Yeah. <laughs> So I know you credit your your success with luck. Mm. I mean, you've you, you've said that in this conversation. Do you have any advice for an aspiring journalist in Alaska? Maybe one that's in college right now. Uh, maybe one that's in high school right now. That that uh, that's looking at what is happening currently with journalism. Yeah, learn to sh- learn to. 
learn as many platforms as you can. Learn to shoot. Learn to learn how to frame a shot for video and learn how to frame a shot with a camera and be adept with still images and be at least at least be like competent with video cameras. Um, and if you're, uh, you know, and the, then the flip side of that is if you're like more interested in being a documentary filmmaker, well, learn how to write too. learn how to write stories, because that's kind of what I do with documentaries. I kind of write them. So it's um, uh, you need to you need to be more versatile than than uh, either. Oh, I'm a print journalist or I'm a broadcast journalist or I'm a TV that doesn't journalist exist anymore. Or a radio journalist like you need. I think that. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah where it's headed and, and maybe start playing around with the augmented reality and like VR cameras and stuff, because I'm not sure exactly how that's going to take off, but it's going to become something that if I were in college or high school right now, I would sure as hell be, uh, uh, training myself up on, you know, that sort of leading edge stuff in terms of how stories can be presented. Cause nobody's really, nobody's really hit it yet with the virtual reality, but it's going to get there. It's going to get there as a form of as a form of journalism. Yeah, yeah. You know, you think about virtual reality and what that what that can do, and and you know, journalism in a story can be a very powerful thing. I mean, it can change policy overnight. You know, you you show a picture of some dead whales on the beach or a sea of plastic in the ocean, and it can change uh, public thought. And I wonder how virtual reality and being able to immerse somebody in there into like a war zone or an environment, how that can change their thoughts and how that could be a pivotal moment in the, in how journalism is a tool for society. Yeah. I think it has huge potential. Yeah. Huge potential. I think this is my thinking on is that, that as a tool for journalism, virtual reality will only start to live up to its full potential once everybody's gotten over the kind of the novelty of virtual reality, because now it feels to me like people like put on a VR set and it could be like, putting somebody into, you know, the war zone in Syria, or it could be like putting them on top of Mount Everest or wherever. They're just like, oh my God, I'm in a different place. You know, they're just sort of wowed by the experience of it. Well, once people get used to it in the same way that once people got used to television or whatever, then you can start to do like serious nonfiction storytelling with it and start to have that impact. But right now it's just kind of in the wow, virtual reality phase still. Yeah. I think (laughs) I'm going to throw up, take this thing off me. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. So, um, right now, who who are some of your favorite journalists? Do you, do you have any people you like to follow? You think that are on the cutting edge? Um, no, it's more outlets. I mean, I you know I'm a big I'm a big Vice media fan. Obviously, I mean Matt Taibbi that writes for Rolling Stone. I like his stuff a lot. Who else? You know, it seems to me. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me like like. Everything's just so dispersed that that journalists don't have this that like journalists don't have the same kind of uh, celebrity or way in a way that they that they used to like it just it's just because there's so many there's so many mm-hmm. each with their own brand. Now, when you think of the celebrity journalists, they are, you know, uh, like broadcast news journalists, and they're the Rachel Maddows. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I guess that's kind of where I was trying to go with that. Is that it seems like there's um, like stories will hit and it just seems like the bylines are not as important as they used to be for, you know, for, for, well, um, go ahead. It's probably because there's less depth to a story. 
I mean, the fact that you have to get something out every 30 minutes or whatnot, you know, you're not putting that yeah, time. The, the writer doesn't matter. Right. That, People like, aren't reading 3,000 right, uh, word right. stories there's anymore. Yeah. Artificial intelligence, they talk about it, that's going to be able to like write stories. Right. You yeah, just put in like the buzzwords. Yeah. yeah, yeah there's not as much, there's not, there's not as many distinct voices uh, doing nonfiction like feature I, writing. Like I, people, I, people don't read features as much. There's not as much. It's not, like, it's not like I mean, it's not like a story hits in a monthly magazine, and then people are then talking about it for a month, like the way things used to work. You know, things just things just come and go so fast. And it's not like people are reading less. I think that people are reading more. Right. Well, they're consuming. Yeah, in terms of like consuming more words. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But there's just like nobody like like steeps on something and like dreams on a story or like lets it kind of like seep into their lives for a couple of weeks. Like when they're like a really big story and like Esquire or Rolling Stone or New York Times Sunday Magazine used to come out, like everybody would be like, God damn, did you read that story? Yeah. I don't think it's like that anymore. Like People, stories, stories that have like a good, if like if you have a good run for like six to eight hours, that's a good run with the story. But yeah. people do that with documentaries. I mean, look at that's Making right. a Murder. I mean, no, everyone was talking about that. Believe me, that's one reason why I jumped. It's like, it's a great, it's the it's a golden age of documentaries right now. Yeah, yeah vid- video it's, as a medium. It's huge. I mean, there's so many, there's so many streaming services coming online with big budgets to actually like invest in films so they can be made the right way. It's, it's, it's like it's like being in the alt weekly world back in the '90s, except this time I realize how good I've got it. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to make a decent living, like doing something that I love, which is like storytelling, like telling stories that I want to tell the way I want to tell them, it doesn't get any better than that. It's just like I've got kind of a a, a second a, a second turn on the merry-go-round, and this time, like I really realize how how lucky I am. You know, earlier you said that you don't consider yourself a journalist anymore, and I have I have really preached the idea that documentaries are journalism. It's just long form journalism. And in the same way that you used to only have to do uh, one feature a month back at new time, you know, this is this to me. Now what you're doing seems pretty parallel to that in that you are working on another piece of long form journalism. Right. Yeah. It's, I guess the, the, the catch though, or the difference is, is that when I was a, when I was writing stories and that's all I was doing I mostly worked alone so when I was a journalist I associate being a journalist with working alone like occasionally maybe like being teamed up with a photographer whatever but mostly it's very solitary craft making a documentary film you're part of an ensemble you're part of like a, a, a company a team of at least a half dozen like people so that's maybe where I where I see the see the difference yeah it might be yeah yeah and now the right I mean I'm I'm writing a play we can talk about that Maybe yeah. for a second. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm writing. I'm writing a play about a journalist who's undercover uh, in the neo-Nazi movement, and it's based on an actual experience I had in, in 2005, where I was uh, I was undercover with uh, this group called the National Socialist National Socialist Movement or NSM, yeah. and they were um, uh, having a rally in Toledo, Ohio, and they'd all gathered at this cheap motel just outside of Toledo uh, to kind of get on their you know, their Nazi shit to get ready for the rally. And uh, Steve Bannon was there. And this was back when Steve Bannon was just kind of like this. And I'd seen him before, a few months before that, down at the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona. Uh, And I was also undercover. Then I was undercover with the, like, Minuteman, like, anti-immigration border vigilantes, okay? And they had what they called a muster where they, like, you know, went down there and tried to catch Mexicans. 
And Bannon was around then too. And at the time, he was like this rich, sort of eccentric character that was hanging out on the far right, you know, doing these pseudo documentaries, um, championing the cause of the of the Minutemen. Now he he didn't have a camera at the uh, at that hotel where the NSM was, but um, you know, I had no idea who. I mean, I knew who he was but then so then to watch him you know became who he became and actually have an office in the white house is like are you fucking kidding me in the same way that i was an intern at the village voice in 1992 i was an intern for a columnist named mike tomaski who's still actually he's a journalist that i follow he's a political journalist but he's more of a commentator but he's great but he wrote a weekly column and if he would get stuck for like because so you would have several items in the column and if he would get stuck for his last item if he'd be like i need like another two or three inches of copy you know, two inches a paragraph. He'd be like, Holt House, go call Trump. And it's because Donald Trump would drop whatever he was doing, you know, in 1992 to talk to any journalist, even if it was an intern from the lefty village voice. And it'd just be like, you know, Mr. Trump, what do you th- tell me about your favorite hot dog vendor, whatever. I literally asked him that one time. And he was just like fucking, you know, it was, it was like every, it was, we, we thought we were clowning him, you know? Like, Do you remember he, his answer? What's that? Do you remember his no, answer? No. It would, it would, it would, whatever you asked him, he would turn it back to how fucking awesome he is within yeah. like five words. So it didn't matter. Like it really didn't. Would call Trump and be like, you could really just say, "Miss Trump, go." You know, <laughs> you know, and that's it. But you would have to have asked him a question. But it was like we thought we were clowning him. But yet at the same time, now I'm thinking like, fuck, man. In a way, like I played a small part in helping keep him. You know, elevated. The, the media has 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 totally enabled him. Yes. I mean, how many billions of dollars in free, you know, TV time did he get because they just had to cover him? He knew that. He learned it back in the tabloids and in with the Village Voice in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. So we're all complicit. Yeah. So thanks a lot, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, there, there's probably a lot of people here that are are grateful. You know, they really. They're pretty stoked on Donald Trump. Yeah, I think so. For me, I'm not, you know, I wasn't, didn't go to school for journalism, not classically trained, but um, I studied political science and kind of, you know, by default had to learn about it and saw its importance and just love telling stories and kind of, you know, extracting that that part of society out and, and retelling it. And so working with Cody and stuff has been really exciting to get involved in this. So it's been, yeah, it's been really cool to sit down with you today and kind of hear it from someone who's been involved in it for a long time and... uh yeah, so I appreciate that. Oh, thanks, you know? guys. Yeah, it was great. It's always it's always great talking to you, man. Okay. Cool. Right on. Awesome. You can support local grassroots journalism at patreon.com slash crude magazine. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that makes it easy for you to support content that matters to our community for as little as $1 a month. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by Cody Liska and Dustin H. James for Crude Magazine. Intro music was produced by Alcoda Beats.